Thank you. I'm just so excited to be here. And I love that I get the opportunity to speak and teach after like the worship set. It's in like times like that, that, you know, sometimes you ever think about this seraphim and the cherubim up in heaven singing holy, holy, holy over and over. You ever like, are they going to be, are we going to be bored? Are they bored doing that? But it's in those moments like that we just experienced. They're like, no, we're not going to be bored. <laughs> it's just going to keep filling us up and filling us up. And we just spread it back out on the Father, the only one who is worthy. So thank you so much for inviting me here today. I understand that you've been having conversations around this table. <laughs> conversations about sexuality and gender and can I just say I'm so proud of you? <laughs> I watched pieces of last week's sermon and oh, like literally even thinking about it brings tears to my eyes because it was just such a beautiful example of surrender and you all moving in with courage and compassion. And I'm so proud of you for inviting me and Greg, but, but to invite us here to have further conversations Conversations with me, a fellow broken, beloved person. You are modeling how to do this stumbling, messy, grace, truth journey well. It has been interesting traveling the country and listening to pastors and teachers and parents all wrestling with the same sorts of questions. What do we do about this LGBT thing? What do we do about sexuality and gender? No longer can churches be silent. They have to step in. It's not unlike the church leaders in the passage that we're gonna be looking at today with another fellow broken, beloved person. I'd love to read that whole section. It's from John 8, starting at verse three. As Jesus was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. But what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down in the dust and wrote with his finger, they kept demanding an answer, and so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman, then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Doesn't even one of them con condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. As churches lean into this sexuality and LGBT conversation, I can see their three types of responses in this passage. The first reaction or response is that of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees. When these types of people in the church encounter LGBT people, they're ready to grab the stone pretty quickly. 
it's sin. Like, like clearly, just stone them in our vernacular. But when it comes to this LGBT conversation, we, the church, need to be more clear about what we are calling sin. Is it the attraction? Is it the temptation toward a sexual relationship or toward someone of your same gender? Or is it the identity label? Choosing a word that helps best describe your default orientation. Is it the looking in the mirror with tears streaming down your face when you feel that your biological sexuality and your gender identity don't match? Is it the lust? Is it the same-sex relationship? Yes, that's the part that is sin, but when the people who represent these Pharisees hear any of it, they just grab the sin and then they grab the stone and they're like, yeah, it's all sin. Throw the stone. The second reaction is that of the sirens of the world, as I call them. It's not as clearly, like explicitly in this chapter, but we can envision them along the periphery or perhaps jumping in. They say, no, 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 don't throw the stone. She's not sinning. She's only living how God designed her to be. Besides, who are you to judge? Thereby making them the judges of the judgers. They get to decide what's inborn sin and inborn glory, thereby kind of declaring themselves as God. Throw away the stone. She's she's not sinning. The third reaction or response that we see is that of Jesus. How does he respond? Tim Keller says of this passage and of Jesus in it, that he walks the line of grace and truth perfectly. This is what you all are trying to do. How, Tim? Jesus Christ combines compassion and justice so perfectly that the world has not seen its like. He's not just a kind of compromise halfway between strong and tender. Rather, he is just and righteous to the nth degree, and he is compassion and melt-in-your-mouth gentle to the nth degree. These two traits don't fight in him. They unite in him. How does he do that? (laughs) Jesus, he figured it out. Before I learned it, am learning it here. I experienced it here. When I was the most desperately wrestling with my own sexual attraction toward my same gender and wrestling with self-hatred and shame and hearing the voices of the church, I felt like this woman. I felt like they wanted to stone me and my girlfriend, even though we worshiped and loved truly the same God they did. Now, I know now that they wouldn't have actually stoned us or even sent us away out of the church. But because everyone was either silent or screaming when it came to this conversation, even the silence sounded like screams. I heard the voices of the Pharisees. It's sin. It just is. 
Homosexuality is wrong. Just stop it. But, but stop what? Like, stop the attractions, the temptation. I don't know how to do that. Stop the relationship. That's going to be really challenging. Stop living. I heard the voices of the sirens the words of the world that echoed the whispers of my own flesh. Dive in farther. Don't hide your relationship. Thrive in it. Celebrate all of who you are. And I felt thrown to the ground, facing my accusers and facing escaping. And I looked up. Jesus, is there another way for me? I truly loved Jesus as much as I knew how. I was leading worship and leading small groups and going to a Christian university, and I wasn't faking it. I, I didn't fit my own stereotypes of what the homosexual lifestyle was. <laughs> I didn't know that there was a perfect middle road that Jesus walked. I didn't know that I could surrender my version of broken sexuality to the Lordship of Christ, just as you all do. The church said I was different from them. You can only talk about that type of sin in the past tense. Our current wrestling and strugglings, those are acceptable here. Yours is gross. But the world said I was different from them. Oh, that's not gross. That's glory. Come to us. We'll set you free. What did Jesus do? How did he walk with this woman? How did he walk with me? The first step that he took on this Grace, truth, journey, you all have been and are continuing to be on is he recognized that this was a grace, truth challenge. <laughs> he saw that it was a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> Star Wars, anyone? <laughs> hey, what up? <laughs> Got some nerds in the house. <laughs> Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Because here's the deal. Here was the man who preached, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But he also preached, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses and of the prophets. I came to fulfill their purpose. So would he say about this woman, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll kill you? Or would he say, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses and of the prophets, but I will ignore it this time. They were trying to trap him. Do you ever feel trapped in this conversation? Do you ever feel like no matter what you say, you are going to automatically be pulled into the, one, of the, one of the polarities? And even if you do like manage to squeak out some grace truth sentences, somebody hates you. Somebody is going to disagree with you. I call it persecution light. 
I mean, we're not in prison camps. <laughs> the reality is, dear church, we cannot win the world, even church world or the worldly world, and lose our souls. But we can win a soul if we are willing to walk like Jesus. So what's the next step he took on this grace, truth, walk? He stepped in to save her life. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. He stoops down and writes. Now what did he write? We're going to figure it out today. Just kidding. <laughs> I have no idea. We can guess. <laughs> but if anyone tells you, like, oh, I got this on lock, they're lying about other things, too. Just telling you. <laughs> However, he did step up. He stepped up and he stooped and he stopped her accusers from killing her. He courageously and humbly saved her life. Are you, are we stepping in to save the lives of sinners? And not just like cute little orphan sinners which is really important, like orphans are very important. We gotta do orphan care. But what about LGBT sinners? Do you care about anti-bullying campaigns at your kids' schools? When you hear of an LGBT teenager killing themselves, do you grieve? Or do you think they're sinners? They deserve it. Who in this room deserves life? I remember feeling this about myself. I remember staring heavenward, begging God to kill me, feeling like I deserved it. When your only two good options are not God's options, death can become enticing because in that isolated space, his voice, the voice of the enemy of our souls is turned up. And he's got one game plan. Steal, kill, destroy. I felt trapped between the sirens of the world and my accusers that felt like the Pharisees ready to stone me. And I begged for the death that they spoke over me. Please, God, kill me. Put me out of my misery. Throw the stone. That's what I prayed. I remember praying that one sunny afternoon after engaging in things with my girlfriend that I knew I shouldn't have. And I looked upward and prayed the same prayer. And instead of God throwing something at my head, he lifted this hazy self-hatred from me. And it was like he looked me in the eye and he said, I love you, Lori. You and your girlfriend, right now, as you are, what? It both baffled and comforted me because I haven't even like confessed this round of sinning yet. While we were yet sinners, says in Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. Do you think that that was like God, like real God talking to me? Isn't he extra anxious about sexual sin? Doesn't he say like one nice sentence but then to like 
back it up and make sure I know I'm still a sinner. He says a, a mean sentence. I love you, Lori, but you know it's sin, right? Hug with one arm, hit with the other. Sometimes, well, oftentimes, I listen to Christian radio, and I'll hear songs that have something like the phrase of, you love me just the way I am. And I think, can gay people sing this too? We love to be known that we're loved just as we are, but what about them? Whoever them is in your mind. Our LGBT people love just as we are too before we confess and surrender. Did Christ die for us too while we were yet sinners? Sometimes we, the church, need permission to mimic the outrageous love of God, that reckless love we just sang about. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage the timid, and take tender care of those who are weak, and be patient with everyone. You can handle the patient sermon. <laughs> but let's lean into that weak word. It means not strong physically or morally, or one of the definitions is, comes from that word arotrio, yeah, nailing it, sure. <laughs> it refers to a lack of necessary resources. Which people group in the church has had decades of a lack of necessary resources? How often do we warn them instead of taking tender care of them? Or Romans 2, 4, God's kindness. Don't you know this? It's posed in a question. It's meant to lead you to repentance. Although I don't need to give it to you, I'm going to offer it to you. You have permission to care, dear church. You have permission to care about bullying. You have permission to weep with those who weep. You have permission to defend the image bearers of broken, beloved people. You have permission to love sexual sinners like me, like you. So what else does Jesus do? How else does he perfectly walk this grace-truth road? Well, he calls out hypocrisy. Jesus never negates the law of Moses, but he says, by the law of Moses, I eliminate you Pharisees from being witnesses or executioners. According to Levitical law, to convict someone of adultery, you needed to have two witnesses catch both people in the act of adultery. In the act, like not before or after or a compromising position in the act. So it made it very difficult to actually convict someone of this. But let me highlight this centerpiece. Both people would have needed to be convicted. Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Hmm. If this is true, 
Perhaps two people caught this woman in the act. Where's the man? She wasn't alone. This was likely a setup. Yes, they were trying to trap, people, trap Jesus in this conversation, but likely they could have set up the whole thing to trap Jesus and perhaps this woman. And it is possible that the man who was in bed with her now stood on the edge with a stone saying, kill her, not me. Jesus likely knew that this was a setup. I mean, he is God. So he turned the finger of accusation off of her and back on their own hearts. How did he do this? Well, all right, let, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Now, notice he did not say, as some commentators will say, that only a sinless person can condemn. That would have never convicted the Pharisees who knew the Levitical law, and they knew they could convict and condemn if they followed the law. What Jesus is saying is that he knows them. He knows they are breaking the law. They broke the law by setting this whole thing up. They're breaking the law by not convicting the man. And they break the law in their minds and in their actions with the very same sin that this woman committed. All right. But let him who has never committed adultery in his mind or in his body throw the first stone. And when they heard this, they left one by one. This sort of hypocrisy we see here was a challenge for me when I was the most deeply wrestling with my own sexuality and the words of my accusers. I remember hearing countless confessions up front from people coming forward with, forward with adultery in marriage and porn in marriage and porn from pastors and porn and pancakes. There's like this thing, I think it was like a national thing where guys could go on Saturday morning and confess their sexuality issues and their addiction and eat pancakes. And I, I actually, I know it was a big gift and a blessing for many men, especially probably mostly heterosexual men, wrestling with pornography and a lot got set free. But the challenge for me was that out of the mouth of people who confessed sexual addiction came words of hatred and disgust toward people like me. Jesus flips the tables on hypocrites like these. All right, stone her. Stone Lori. But is her sexual sin worse than yours? But what else does Jesus do? How else does he walk this perfect grace truth road? Well, he's, he's got to look at me. He's got to look at the woman at some point. After he takes care of those around us, he looks at us. And how does he approach us? He names sin as sin. He never said to this woman, 
you are not guilty. He didn't agree with like a lot of what the Pharisees said and did, but he did agree that she was guilty. Yeah, throw the stone. She deserves death. She sinned in her actions. But Jesus also said she is not condemned. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. How could Jesus say that? How can he say both, you are guilty, but not condemned? Because he's Jesus. And he's the only one who can say, you are guilty, but not condemned, because I will take the condemnation for you. Romans 8, my favorite passage. I'm going to read the first four verses because they're just awesome. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. The law of Moses was satisfied for this woman because Jesus is the one who took all the stones for her. Jesus solves all of our grace truth problems by being all of our grace truth answer. She deserved death. I deserve death. You all deserve death. But he died. Is this not why we are all Christians? We have all felt at one time or another that we are in a circle surrounded by accusers, real or in our mind, or just the accuser of us all. And we know that we deserve stoning and death and suffering and hell, but then Jesus steps in, takes our place, and offers grace, amazing grace. Yeah, it has been interesting traveling the country and listening to everyone bring up these questions about what do we do what do we do about this LGBT thing? How, how do we solve our grace truth conundrum? Oh, I hope that these questions lead to more answers that look like Jesus. And the first step we take is we recognize, yeah, we got a grace truth pickle here. The second step is we step in courageously and humbly to save lives. The third step is that we confess our own hypocrisy. And then the fourth is we do name sin as sin. But here's the last step. 
is that we are willing to link arms with fellow broken, beloved people around the world and run to the cross and say, Father, we, your broken, beloved people, are in need of your grace equally every day. Let's pray toward that end now. Father God, we are in need of your grace. God, so many of us can us versus them, different people groups in the world, and God, we are here right now confessing we're wrong. Please forgive us, God, and God, thank you for your grace. Thank you, God, that you are the one who takes all of our place. You don't take some people's place extra. You take it all equally. So, Father, I just pray, just even if there's any movement in this room right now, for us to go to a deeper level with you. I pray we wouldn't be fearful. I pray against any spirit of fear, and I, God, I ask for a spirit of courage to come to you every day. In your name, amen.